Welcome to the Options Save Lives weekly live stream, where we spend an hour each week exploring life-improving topics through a lens of alcohol recovery and the Sinclair Method. Every week, we take on a new question, topic, or common challenge to empower people to either build a better relationship with alcohol or to eliminate it completely. Episodes are filmed live on Twitch at twitch.tv slash c3foundation, and the audience is encouraged to ask questions and engage with the hosts and guests. The Option Save Lives weekly stream is hosted by Executive Director Jenny Williamson and is produced by the C3 Foundation with the support of R Street Institute and other generous sponsors. For more information about the C3 Foundation or the Sinclair Method, visit our website at c3foundation.org. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Options Save Lives weekly live stream, and thank you for your patience this morning. As always, I'm Jenny Williamson, Executive Director here at the C3 Foundation, and your host for the rest of the hour. How is everyone today? We're broadcasting live from the C3 Found Foundation office here in Fort Myers, Florida. We'd love to know where all of you are watching from out there. And if you're a first timer to the stream, welcome. We hope you'll let us know in the chat. This week, we're gonna talk about the importance of connection for long-term recovery with Dr. William Nelson. We wanted to talk about this today because connection has really come to the forefront of the mental health and addiction conversation in the last few years. And we've seen how support in general can enhance reduction and success time on the Sinclair Method. And we've seen how much deeper the struggle is for people who feel like they have little to no support. So if you guys have questions while we're talking or suggestions that have helped you personally, please put those in the ch chat box so we can keep things interactive. We are going to, even though we got started a little late, we're going to end at one here Eastern as normal, just, uh, just to stay on track and uh, respect everybody's time. So before we jump in, let me properly introduce our guest for today. Dr. William Nelson is an internationally renowned expert in addiction medicine. He has successfully treated thousands of patients and specializes in treatment of fentanyl, heroin, and alcohol use disorder. Dr. Nelson is a neuropathic medical doctor practicing in Scottsdale and Flagstaff, Arizona. In addition to his work with addiction medicine, he also specializes in non-surgical back and joint repair using prolotherapy, PRP, and stem cell-derived exosome injections for acute injuries and chronic pain. Addiction medicine is extremely personal for Dr. Nelson. One of his four children was a heavy IV heroin user. Despite receiving treatments and the best addiction treatment centers in the world, she could not remain sober for more than 30 days before she predictably relapsed. Our, the family had lost hope and realized that one day his daughter was going to die from her uncontrollable addiction. After years of searching for something that would make a difference in her recovery, Dr. Nelson finally performed an naltrexone pellet implant on his daughter. This story was highlighted in a recently published special edition of Time Magazine called The Science of Addiction. So welcome to our show, Dr. Nelson. Thank you so much. And, uh, 
Um, I'm glad, uh, speaking of connection, I'm glad we became connected because uh, um, due to my problem, I'm getting connected. I'm, I'm glad to be here, though. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you. So before we jump into today's topic, we always start with what is hopefully an easy icebreaker. You and I have a, a similar connection here in, in that we are we both enjoy playing disc golf. So I've got to ask, what's your favorite disc that you have to have in your bag whenever you go out? You know, um, that's a great question. And um, I think mine is, um, I'm a fan and a personal friend of Ricky Wysocki. So I have a, a BT harp, um, a BT soft harp that's very well broken in with his signature on it. And it, and it, it said, uh, uh, one time world champion and I crossed it out and put two times. So, uh, that's my favorite disc and, you know, kind of the reason why is because he's, he signed it and he's an amazing player and he's having a great year again. Um, but also those of you who played disc golf is like you buy a disc and you like it, but if you buy a disc and you play with it, the more you play with it, the more it becomes broken in. And that one is so broken in and I, it's irreplaceable. So for a number of reasons. So that's my favorite. Yeah. Um, for me, it's a warden. I probably have 20 of them. They're my go-to putter. And I, uh, when I compete, I literally have four putters, all yeah. wardens at different stages of being broken in and with different plastics, uh, but all the same weight so that they, they react differently based on what I need them to do. So my, mine, I just, I can't play without a warden in my bag. All righty. <laughs> All right. So let's go ahead and jump in. So what first got you interested in learning more about the power that connection has in particular where recovery is involved? Wow. Wonderful question. And, um, you know, that isn't the focus of what I do. So I'm a naturopathic doctor and I was introduced to a Sinclair method from a patient who I had done a number of uh, naltrexone pellet inserts. So it's naltrexone, but it's placed in a surgical implant, goes under the skin in the rear end. And um, he, he was burning, he had a high metabolism, burned through this quickly. And so he said, uh, hey, can you um, look at the Sinclair method? And he gave me some information. I said, yeah, yeah, uh, obviously if it really is that effective and safe, everybody would know about it, which is not true. And so, but I, I had an open mind, looked into it. And as a hopeful skeptic, I'm like, let's try it. It worked and it worked fabulously now. And um, so what the answer to your question is not everybody did as well as he did. And so that became a search for why. And, after you know kind of contemplation and when someone would relapse and um trying to evaluate the effectiveness is it missing a particular vitamin is it missing a particular hormonal balance is it diet lifestyle and the one commonality that i did find is there is some isolation or disconnect and that could be both with uh, close personal friends, support network, the right type of professional care, um, 
And then ultimately a connection with spirit and having a spiritual connection, which is the essence of what I feel is missing when someone is unsuccessful, oftentimes not due to biochemistry, it's due to this lack of connection. So. And we've seen that with surveys that, uh, I mean, they're, they're not formal research, but the, uh, on an in, informal surveys, we've seen that the more, not just amount of support, but the more complexity they have, so the different types of support that they have in their lives, people reduce their drinking much faster and in greater quantities. So we've, we've seen the same thing with, uh, with random surveys. So there, it just seems like there's a lot of, I, I granted, it's a lot of anecdotal evidence to back that up, but it's a growing amount of it. Yeah. Well, when you, when you mention anecdotes, it's like anecdotes is a euphemism, euphemism for something that we know that has validity, but hasn't been able to be proven with a double blind and I don't know how you double blind connection exactly double blind. okay so here we're going to arrange for a bunch of people and we're going to give you fake friends these are only <laughs> placebo friends that they're pretending to be your friend but they're not really your friends so then we can make sure that yeah so it's it's kind sometimes I think our uh, western medicine and the dominant medical paradigm is so caught up with evidence-based how do you prove that you have friendship well because they show up and if you might have a thousand friends on you know that follow you on twitter or you have facebook friends or virtual friends how many friends do you have that when you call you know they're going to respond and they're going to show up no matter what that's a that's a friend right and you know, we know that addiction can be very isolating. So what kind of struggles or stumbling blocks have you seen in general? And what kind of str unique struggles have you seen in patients on the Sinclair method when they're trying to build or rebuild or fix connections? Well, you know, one of the things that is a big problem is there's, there's shame. And, you know, people have guilt. And, you know, there's a difference. Guilt is something that you did. And then there's shame that's almost more all-encompassing. And if you have toxic shame is, you know, guilt is I did a bad thing. Shame is, you know, I, I'm kind of a bad person. Toxic shame is I'm, there's no help. So when someone has had a lifelong or an extended period of time when they've let people down, They've hurt people because of their addiction. They've hurt themselves. They've hurt their friends. They've hurt their family. They've hurt their loved ones. They've lost their job. They're, they're, they've hit bottom. Oftentimes they don't feel worthy of having these connections. And so it's, you got to kind of heal that part. Um, you heal this things like, no, you're actually a good person that, that made some bad choices. So I think that to me, that's one of the biggest challenges is to get a person to accept themselves before others will accept them. And that's not something that you can just tell them intellectually. Somehow they have to kind of go, oh, yeah, you're right. It's not easy, not easy to do. Yeah, I think one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever seen people say is, I don't deserve help. With all that I've done, I, I don't even deserve help. 
And and that really speaks to what you just said. And it's it's a crushing heartbreak because you know you can't fix that in somebody else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's frustrating for the family members and frustrating for, you know, as a doctor and someone who works on these things, it's frustrating when I, it's really frustrating to me. And I, I can see it both as a doctor and also in, in a community of people that that want to help people with struggling with alcohol use disorder or opiate or heroin use disorder like my daughter. And I think with my daughter, um, it is it is part of the reason why she was able to overcome those un, you know, overwhelming odds is that she always knew we changed the way we interacted with her, but she always knew we, we would not cut her off no matter what. You stopped giving her money, stop, you know, giving her a place to stay when she was high, but she always knew that we loved her and we would do anything to help her as long as it was something that wasn't enabling. Right. And and I'd love you to go into that a little bit more because we have we actually do have a lot of support system family members of various uh, connections that often watch our videos. And and even last week, I was on the phone with a mom for an hour and a half because she was she 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 just had so many concerns and questions about her adult child, but also her role and the the line between enabling and loving. So please please dive into that a little bit because it's it's such a an important part of the connection process. Well, I hope I can do this without crying because about every time I do, I get choked up because I, I saw the import of that in dealing with our daughter. And I see the parents struggle and frustration when they are, would do anything to help their, as you often mentioned, adult child. Um, and um, a couple of things that um, we've learned, and that is if, that person with the addiction, your adult child, let's say, if they are dependent on your financial support for them to continue their addictive process, that's something that has to change. It has to be uncomfortable for them because if they're comfortable, they're on a vacation, they're on a holiday, they don't have a job, they're living at home, you know, they have a cell phone, they may even have access to a car, they watch movies and they you know, have a semblance of a life, but they're not doing anything productive. They don't have motivation or, you know, uh, uh, avocation or a passion for anything. And it's different. Once you enter into an addictive relationship with a parent child, the rules change. And it's so difficult for people to realize the way to help that child is to reduce or limit the amount of help that they're giving. It goes against all of the parental instincts that we've all learned from the time that child was born. You know, usually up until about seven, you're just protecting them from harm and loving them unconditionally. Once they lose their baby teeth, their next stage of life, you now they're going through what's which going to be challenging, and that is they're becoming into a young adult and they're becoming an adolescent. And I think during that time, that the parent-child relation has to change along with the development of the child and their discernment. And 
the best way that I know um, after studying this and looking into it is you have to decrease the level of um, ennui or the discomfort or the anxiety that that child feels telling them, I'm going to change the way we communicate as you're getting older and as is appropriate based on the child's development, you give them more autonomy. You let them still, you're looking out to make sure they don't harm themselves, but allowing them to make slight mistakes in judgment or doing things that, you know, you might not think is good for them, but you're like, well, they got to learn. And I think included in that, and this, this goes against a lot of the dominant paradigm, just say no doesn't seem to work. You know, and, and that it was a slogan and a catchphrase, but kids are kids. And if a kid is going to experiment, they, they you're, you can't say, I forbid you ever to drink alcohol and I forbid you ever to do drugs and forever experiment. And we would hope that would be the case, but studies and statistics show that's, that's not the case. And so having a frank discussion with that child, say around age 10, 11, it's not too early. I've had heroin and opiate addicts that started at 10. And, and educating them about that, about the damage that it can do, but also leaving, leaving that relationship open to say, hey, if you, if you feel like you want to experiment with you know, alcohol, let's have a conversation about it. Because I would do anything to prevent you from doing that but if it means that I'm going to forbid it and you go behind my back and do it, which is usually what happens, that, that creates a lot more tension and stress. So having, giving that child more autonomy, giving them the ability to make mistakes, telling them that you, you're, you have their back and you're going to love them no matter what, it relieves some of the tension so that kid doesn't have to be perfect. And, you know, in the, this is a fine line because you're not promoting drinking, you're not promoting drug use, but you're, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like the same thing as like the best form of uh, birth control is abstinence. It's very similar. It's like, oh, if we just put our head in the sand and say everybody's going to be abstinent because they know they shouldn't have sex, that's, that's how you have unwanted pregnancies. And so it's the same thing with alcohol and drug use. Chances are most statistics show I don't, I don't know exactly um i you know it's probably a year ago since i looked into it but it's probably 50 percent of the kids in high school have used um either alcohol or drugs within the last month wow and and most of them haven't become addicted or drunks but they still tried and so the point being is if we can reduce the baseline anxiety level of a child going through adolescence where their body's changing. They want more independence. They're developing hair in these places and they're having feelings they don't understand and they want to be accepted and they're trying to find their place in life and they're wanting to be more independent. If you can change the dynamic of the parent-child relationship, you're still out for their best interest, but you're giving them more autonomy, giving them a longer leash, which is a bad metaphor, but um, the, it can, it can, lower that anxiety level. So imagine a child that's going through teenage angst and adolescence and all the challenges of being accepted. Who am I? Where am I? I want to be independent. And I'm, I'm growing into an adult. I'm not an adult. I'm trying to prove myself. If you can imagine lowering that anxiety level baseline from a seven to a three, now when they use a substance that alters their mind, getting relief 
from the use of illicit substance for those kids, if they go from a seven to a three or a two on the anxiety level, like that's life changing. That's a that's like breathing air. It feels so good for them to be able to have that reduction in anxiety. But if that kid has a baseline of anxiety level because you've been dealing with them and changing your interaction, say their anxiety levels from goes from a seven to a four or seven to a three. Now when they drink or when they do drugs, it's like, oh, I, I was, you know, at an anxiety level four and now I'm three. It's like not that much of a big a deal. And this is theoretical. And um, I learned this from uh, one of my mentors. To me, it makes so much sense. It makes so much sense because if we get to the if we get to the root of the problem, I don't necessarily think that the consumption of heroin, opiate, fentanyl, or drinking that the the consumption of that isn't the base and a root of the problem. The the root of the problem is why do they benefit? from its use and how do we prevent that from happening? Once they're into it, it's it's a much more difficult challenge. I mean, it makes sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. And so just speak a little bit about how how that um, and how, how doing boundaries, how boundaries are different from cutting people people out of your life. So just kind of differentiate that a little bit. That's wonderful. It's a beautiful question. And, you know, I'll, I'll base it on my, my child, our, our daughter, Lauren. And um, we, we changed the way we dealt with her. And um, for those out there trying to figure out how do I do this? What's some, you know, I don't want to make a mistake and you might make a mistake in, in this process. But in my opinion, they're going to go through their process. And the, the sooner you change in how you're dealing with your kid, the better. Usually when the parent changes their interaction with their child, they're leading their child by about six months in their, in their recovery. And the best resource that I've ever seen is a book um, called um, The Four Seasons of Recovery. And um, the Michael Speakman is uh, the gentleman that I was talking about, and he's mentored me in, in how in dealing with these personal relationships. He also was the founder of a group called palsgroup.org. Uh, and that is a, it's a group of uh, lay people that train parents on how to change the dynamics of the relationship. And for us, it's probably why our daughter's alive. She overdosed on heroin uh, four or five times. She was in the ER. She got the Narcan shots. Her heart had stopped twice and had to be, you know, cardio paddled and cardio converted. So we were, we were, you know, we would do anything to prevent her demise, but we were really convinced she was going to kill herself. And had she been using presently, she would have because fentanyl is a hundred times more potent than heroin. So the couple things, um, I mentioned it, alluded it to it earlier, is as a parent, we always want to just do everything for our child, give them all what they need, give them love, give them attention, you know, and within reason, give them financial support. Once they're at an age where they would be capable of really taking care of themselves and you're still supporting them, if they are using drugs or alcohol, 
you are not helping them, not helping them at all. It being using alcohol and drugs, if you are truly addicted and being financially supported by your parents is not helping at all. And so that's where the boundaries come in. And uh, Mike Speakman has told me, if you're, if you're a parent and you have an addicted loved one living in your home, eating your food, living under your roof, using your car, having access to a car, paying their cell phone. And if they're addicted and, and you have a good relationship, you're, you're not helping them. It basically, you have to make it so uncomfortable for them and set, set the boundaries back to boundaries. Say, okay, if you live in my home, here are the rules. And these rules have to be followed. And if a person is using addictive substances, you say, you can't do it in my home. And then you have to get to the point where you can say, you know, at any time I can do a drug test on you. And then what are the consequences? And I think you, you can't really, some people will do it. Some people will do it very abruptly. And they'll say, by, by this time next week, you have to be out of my home and you, you don't have a car. And I'll, you know, I talked to a patient uh, last week and their mother and father came in and what they did is they said, okay, you're out of the home by next Friday because you know, this isn't working. And we'll, we put you up in an apartment and we paid the first month rent after that it's on you. And, and guess what? The person's like, oh, my parents are serious, put them up and put them in an apartment. And guess what? They got a job. They, they did what they had to do. And I think as a parent, we have this fear, like what if the kid, you know, doesn't do well? What if they can't get the job? What if they can't, you know, and we go through all these things. What if, what if, what if, and, um, we have to have more faith in our kids that they're capable. You know, if you're capable of, you know, juggling all the lies and the things that you need to do to manipulate and in allow you to continue your addiction, that's pretty capable. Because so often they're, they're able to keep all these stories straight for a while. And they're highly able to, you know, sometimes function under the radar for quite some time. So, you know, those same qualities and abilities they use to, you know, kind of have a semblance of a life that usually falls apart, those same qualities they can use to fend for themselves. And that's where, that's where it's challenging because it, it hurts. And the parent is like, I'd do anything. Well, would you, would you run the risk of your kid failing and by putting them out on their own? That's a lot easier than saying I'd do anything and let them still stay in your house while you know they're using or drinking or they're 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 not moving forward. So I think for boundaries, the best thing on that palsgroup.org, they have a suggested contract that you can make. And this should be done not unilaterally, it should be done together. And there should be some sort of a consensus between the parent and the child, say, okay, this is what I agree to. What do you agree to? Set time frames, make it realistic. But once it's written, once it's agreed to, it can't, you can't go back on it. And then the parent, the child will try oftentimes to make the parent feel guilty. Why are you doing this to me? Or, you know, don't you love me? And they plan your heartstrings. And that's where the challenge is, is with, 
it's it would be much easier to do with an employee or a friend but this is your own flesh and blood and that's why setting boundaries and staying with them long term is the best for the development recovery of the child but during the time you're doing it is really hard because it pulls on your heartstrings so when i think of connections I also think about the so many people who are afraid that, well, their friends aren't going to like them if they're sober or even worse, that they're not going to like themselves without alcohol. So for these people in particular, connections can be really scary because there's a level of vulnerability to being open to support, even with people that you know. So can you talk a little bit about how someone who may have first used alcohol to ease the anxiety of social interactions can learn to build those connections without it? Wow. That's a, that's a great, that's a great question. And, you know, I think, I think at some level, that is only going to happen through their own personal development. And what I mean by that is once you realize that you are a good person and you have value and you are interesting, which a lot of people suffering with addiction, they've, they've had this misguided notion that may have developed from early childhood or somehow an event, an episode, a tragedy, a trauma, an abuse situation, a loss of a parent or a, a sibling, grandparent, even you know anything that's made it a really strong impact on a developing brain and a developing personality. Those are just circumstances that have occurred. The challenge is when the person makes that give, gives that meaning more than just what happened. And so, you know, say, say there was a divorce early on in a, a child's life, which often happens. And then somehow because of the poor relationship between the, the two parents, one parent becomes absent. So that child, even though they're told, no, it wasn't about you, there's nothing you did. They're like, well, why isn't my one parent communicating with me anymore? What, well, I'm, I'm not worth having a relationship. So something like that, what it really was is the parents couldn't get along and they just thought it best that one kind of bow out and not be particularly involved. And that's truly what happened. But sometimes a child might say, well, that means that I don't have value. I'm not good enough. And then so either they compensate by trying to do too much and through achievement in sports or academics or delving into something and that becomes their focus or they can't find that. And so they're like, oh gosh, when I drink alcohol or do drugs, now I, I my self-esteem, even if for a momentary moment changes and now I feel better about myself. Those are those are some of the things that, that happen. And um, can you, I kind of got long-winded. Remind me of the point. I know there's a point behind this. How people who who are using alcohol or who initially yeah. used alcohol to calm those anxieties of self-doubt and and all of that can then move forward and learn yeah. how to 
acknowledge that their value in connections without it. I knew there was a point behind my roundabout (laughs) logic. And the point is those things that happen to someone, those are events. That's not who you are. And if a person believes that misguided notion that they're not perfect and they're not valuable and they're not interesting and that, you know, they, there's, they'll be difficult to get along with others. They have to heal that wound. And that, that is so challenging because sometimes it's not even at a conscious level is, and that's where either through, you know, personal counseling, therapy, alternative methods such as EMDR or some mind body medicine, or somehow get the realization where a person has to really accept who they are. Like, you know, I thought when my dad left when I was four, it was because of me and I wasn't good enough. Now I'm now I'm 23 and I'm finally realizing I am good. I am good enough just as I am. And once they realize that, they won't have that same level of fear and anxiety and social hesitancy, <coughs> thinking that they'll only be interesting if they drink. And so it, it's it's kind of like the the social anxiety or the desire to drink or any of those, that's their best effort at trying to make connection but connection made with drugs and alcohol isn't real. So being able to come back to the realization that, you know, if you want to put it in a spiritual perspective, you were born in the image and likeness of God, pure light, pure love. And you have so much to give. If you only get out of the way of these preconceived and misguided notions that you're not enough and accept who you are, you may not be perfect and you may be a work in progress, but by just accepting that, now those relationships will <coughs> will come come to fruition. And what may usually occur is you're going to change the people you hang around with, and that's hard for people. Like I've been friends with this person since junior high school. Well, maybe you've been hanging around with the wrong people, and you know a lot of a lot of people in self help um, paradigm believe, you know, look at who you're hanging around today. And that's where you're going to be five and 10 years from now. So if you're hanging around people that are using drugs and drinking, and you're I have a problem with that, chances are it's going to be super difficult. So especially with uh, heroin and opiates, they got to change almost like get a different cell phone block all the old numbers. So it's kind of like a metanoia starting anew. And once you do that, and, and you start to develop real friendships and you can tell them, hey, listen, you know, they might drink socially and say, hey, listen, you know, just so you know, I've had a, a history of alcohol use disorder and I can't drink. Or for, for others like, hey, I do this, I do this process and I don't know how much you'd want to get into it with someone because it's not your job to educate them about Sinclair, but say, listen, I do this thing and I'm working on alcohol. I take a pill, wait an hour and drink. And then they will be less apt to say, oh, have another. You know, that's sometimes peer pressure, silly. But I have, I have grown men who have to join a different uh, group of uh, playing partners playing golf because their other guys want them to drink all the time. Instead of having the, the honest conversation, I doubt 
with the type of camaraderie you have usually with adult males you can't sit around with a group of 12 to 16 and say hey guys i got a drinking problem i'm going to take this pill and drink less i appreciate it if you guys don't give me shit about it a lot of times that doesn't happen he's he's it was just so easier to go and drink with or go play golf with the guys that didn't drink and what are some of the top benefits that people get when they create strong connections you then you then you um if things are if you're struggling then you're not you're not ruminating about it you have someone the ideal situation is you know it's what people do when they pay for therapy they they pay someone to care about what's going on and that's the initial thing that you do in developing trust and then once you, that therapist has gained the trust of the person coming to see them then they can, then they might be willing to listen to give them help but you can as a friend you can just listen and sometimes just listening to someone who truly cares and doesn't automatically you know say why are you doing that and condemn them or give them advice you know i'll i'll bring this back into the um, parent child relationship and this is something that could be if you hear one thing that i say today this may be that in addition to the uh, palsgroup.org website and the uh, the four seasons of addiction book to help coach you this next comment may be for uh, parents of addicted adults this may be the best thing you can do is if your child is struggling if you're adult child is going nowhere and frustrated and depressed and anxious and you're going what can i do to help this kid our tendency is they tell you a problem you immediately go into fix it mode oh i'll fix that i'll do this for you i'll give you some money we'll we'll clear take care of it listen to what the child is telling you and if it's they lost their job or they're going to get kicked out of their apartment or something bad happened you listen and you listen intently without interrupting let them spill their guts if you have the relationship where they feel they can do that, usually you don't because they're so used to being judged. But if you can just listen and tell them, say, listen, I'm going to change how we do our relationship. If you have a problem, I want you to feel free to come to me and I will do my best to listen because I care about you. So if you can get them to truly tell you what's going on, here's the response. Said, okay, I hear you. And you parrot back what they've just told you. So now they know, God, What's going into dad or mom? They actually listen to me. They're not giving me a lecture. So suddenly they're, they're going, something's changed. And then you say, and really, I have to ask you, there's three options. One, do you want me just to listen so I know what you're going through? And I care about you. I love you. But if you'd like, I can just listen. And, know, and now you know that I really understand what's going on. I can do that. or if you if you like, after I hear all of what's going on, I'll give you my advice of what I think you may be able to do. But I'm only going to do that if you want that from me. I'm happy to do that. Or if they give you that same um, challenge or circumstance they're going through, say, or if you want to me to become involved, I'm not going to fix it for you, but you can use me as a resource that would be appropriate as, as long as you know, we're working towards something together. And if you can just get that, 
sometimes that's the thing that can transform relationships. And it sounds like that would also be great advice for the spouse of somebody who is on the Sinclair method or is in any other form of recovery. Yeah. Yeah. Spouse, spouse, really, really close friends. Sometimes we'll try to save each other. You know, I had someone call us the other day and say, my friend's doing this and they're doing that. And, you know, what can I do? And, you know, do they want to get well? No, they don't want to get well. I'm like, well, until they change, you know, it's, it's actually, um, people here, we're coming up on the end. Yes. And here's something that I would tell to you, if you're out there listening and you've just heard this for the first time, or you've had people that have told you, ah, it didn't work, or my loved one tried it and it didn't work. People ask me, what is the success rate in Sinclair Method that you get? And and I, I kind of am flippant about it. I'm like, you know, in, in probably seven to 10 years, I've had four or five people that the medication didn't do what we want it to do is decrease the desire for alcohol. So as far as I can tell, my success rate with Sinclair Method is probably 98 or 99%. And they'll go, really? I go, now, wait a minute. I'm not saying 98 to 99% of the people that I've seen and prescribed naltrexone with Sinclair are all sober, but you're asking the wrong question. How successful is the person that we're concerned with, with doing what it takes to get wow? You don't just take a pill and stop and decrease your drinking. You have to look at some of these other very nuanced, complex, you know, multifactorial things. It includes counseling, developing a, a new self-awareness and appreciation for who you are, you know, finding these connections. The one we didn't really get into, but kind of alluded to is a spiritual connection. And once you have a true spiritual connection, that's the essential connection you're looking for because it's ever present always flowing in and through you and it can't be denied unless you choose to do that so those are those are the things that are a lot more difficult than taking a pill and on that note we we are basically out of time Audience, you guys have been wonderful as always. Again, thank you for your patience and for spending the last hour with us. And we'd love to see in the chat box, you know, what advice you're taking from today. And please join me in thanking our wonderful guest, Dr. William Nelson. Uh, audience, um, you know, if you guys came in late, or if you guys want to share or watch the stream again, we're going to have today's video up on our website, YouTube, Vimeo, Anchor, and Spotify, hopefully all by the end of today. And I'm going to edit out the beginning stuff of the replay from the first few minutes. Um, but we will have that isolated and ready to go later today. Next week, we're going to be joined by Gabrielle Loomis-Annette, and we're going to talk about the intersection between trauma and addiction. So please start thinking about those questions now. If you guys have found value in this broadcast, we hope you'll hit the donate button in our profile or head over to our website to make a donation at c3foundation.org slash donate. You can follow our channel to get broadcast alerts and subscribe to our channel to go ad-free and get some bonus emoji to use. And thank you to all of our subscribers. Twitch notified me this morning they're sending us another check. And that is all thanks to you guys. If you are an Amazon Prime member, you can subscribe for free. 
If you'd like to suggest a guest or a topic for a future broadcast, which would end up being next season, we've got a link to the Google form that'll drop in the chat, and you can find that on our main schedule page on our website. If you're on the Sinclair Method, you're looking for more peer support, or you just want to join the C3 Foundation community, we've got you covered with groups on Facebook, Discord, and the Option Save Lives Forum. So that is it for today. Have a wonderful weekend. Be gentle with yourself and with others. And I'll see you again right here next week on Twitch at noon Eastern. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Jenny. You've been watching the Options Save Lives weekly live stream, hosted by Executive Director Jenny Williamson and produced by the C3 Foundation with the support of R Street Institute and other generous supporters. For more information about the C3 Foundation or the Sinclair Method, visit our website at c3foundation.org. If you have a question you want answered live on air, to make guest suggestions, or to support the show, let us know. You can reach us through our website, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or on Discord. Join us each week as we continue to discuss more ways to help you build a better relationship with alcohol or to eliminate it completely. Because recovery from alcohol use disorder is not a one-size-fits-all process. Options are available. And options save lives.